Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm pleased to welcome Audio Technica back as presenting partner for season four of Let's Talk About Sex. Their support has meant a lot, and their equipment is a huge reason why the show sounds great. Be sure to check out their creator pack if you're looking at content creation yourself. And if you're not a producer, get into their home audio setups to get your home entertainment on point. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. This is part two of an episode about two high-demand groups that formed out of San Francisco's female orgasm movement. If you haven't listened to part one, I'd suggest you go back and do that now. Welcome to Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also contains sexually explicit content, discussions of sexual abuse, including of minors, and references to suicide. There's also a little coarse language. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. By the time Sasha Nelson came across the welcomed consensus, Christine Talbot Acosta had been out for quite some time. The group was now using all kinds of channels to bring in new recruits, including dating apps like Tinder. This was where Sasha connected with a man named Bill. Before you hear Sasha's story, I want to say how impressed I was by her. Sasha had reached out to me while I was researching One Taste to share her story, and her timing was impeccable. I was amazed to be reading about another problematic group coming out of this movement around the female orgasm. And I'm someone who, after this many episodes, has a deeper understanding than most, I think, about how cults can come from any belief system. But still, this one was pretty new to me. 
As we got to the end of our interview, Sasha told me how she goes through phases of feeling embarrassed for having been caught up in something like this. One of the biggest reasons that people don't realise how many cults there are out there in our communities is the shame and embarrassment of ex-members. I think it's hugely brave of people like Sasha and Christine to talk about their experiences, and especially so when it comes to something like this, which society already instills a lot of shame around, especially for women. Here's Sasha. I originally became involved um, because I was living in Northern California and I was single and living on my own and I was on Tinder and I was on Tinder looking for a relationship. I wanted a boyfriend. I wanted a partnership. I wanted to be seriously involved with somebody and so I... I was on Tinder kind of seeing if there was possibility of meeting new people there. And I came across the profile of a man who was, uh, whose profile stated that he lived in a sensuality community and that he and the people he lived with believed that female orgasm was the path to enlightenment and that they were polyamorous and I thought it was interesting because I'd actually done the One Taste workshop and I thought the information at the One Taste workshop was pretty interesting. And I had dabbled a little bit in that community and I had had some semi-profound experiences but then ultimately pulled away from it because it just got very weird and I, I decided not to be a part of that anymore and ultimately it wasn't what I was looking for in my relationship. Well anyway, Bill had his profile that showed that he was in the sensuality community and I uh, I thought his photos look really attractive and I thought well this isn't what I want at all really but maybe it's a way to kind of be entertained until I do find what I'm looking for. So uh, he and I connected, and I set up a time to go to San Francisco and have a due date at his house. I asked Sasha if she could give me her explanation of a due date. Yeah, a due date is a 10 to 15 minute practice of um, stimulation of the clitoris or the penis, manual stimulation. So that's pretty much all there is to it um and there aren't many other rules around it in one case there are more rules and it's called a uh it's called orgasmic meditation in ohm yeah and so in the ohm practice they have a lot more rules around it it's almost scripted there are a lot of things about what men can say and can't say um and how you act and each step is kind of laid out and in the due dates it's really just uh stimulation of either the clitoris or the penis for 10 to 15 minutes you wear gloves for you know safety reasons you use lubricant you set a timer and um yeah that's what a due date is. And he had explained to me that uh, 
people, he only has due dates in his house and I would have to drive there. And it was about a 50 minute drive. So I went to his house and when I met him, I liked him a lot. I thought he was really attractive. I thought he was really interesting. The house was nice. The due date was fine. And I met a few of the people in the house and um, it was a positive experience. And then I left and I thought, well, okay, that was that. It was kind of a one-off and it's far away. And this guy, Bill, doesn't really seem available at all for what I'm looking for. So moving on. And then uh, the morning after we had our date, uh, he, Bill, who is the main recruiter of the group, which I didn't realize at the time, but he had texted me. And he had texted me a series of these texts that were quite poetic and they were kind of um, like revealing and sexual a little bit. And, and they were, um, I, I was surprised by them. And so, but also amused and, and slightly confused because I hadn't felt like he was available um, for an intimate connection he had expressed that the house rules were that you could only um, have physical intimacy outside of the due date with people in the house and they were polyamorous and it, it was just a lot of rules that I felt like he was unavailable so I texted back and it became a pretty um like quick exchange of texts that went on for I think a few days and then he immediately started proposing that I come down for one of their benchmarks which is a weekly um, social gathering that they open to the public and they have people come and they advertise on a lot of different sites to have people come to this uh, social event where they play quote-unquote social games and so I finally accepted his invitation to go do that. I had an okay time, not an amazing time. Um, and again, I felt like it's far, kind of over this now. But he kept texting and texting, and then that led to me going into courses um, that he invited me to. And then the texting got a little heavier in terms of emotion, and we were sexting a lot. And then, you know, just things happened very quickly where I was, you know, within a few months, pretty much dismantling my life and uh, moving into the commune in San Francisco. Sasha told me about the relationship between the welcomed consensus and one taste after I wondered whether there was any communication between the two groups. No, they're completely separate entities. Um, and I think the welcome consensus is really happy to be not associated with one taste. And welcome consensus keeps a very low profile you know, they, they do advertising here and there, but they really kind of stay on the down low. They, they keep their business kind of quiet. 
And then one taste is like the more showy, glamorous, you know, extravagant. Um, or for a while when they were really kind of on an upward trajectory as far as popularity, you know, they had just a lot more of a um, extroverted quality about the organization. So that was a little more star-studded. Um, and then the welcome consensus is more of a grassroots, feels a little more family-oriented, and that's what made me feel safer with welcome consensus. You know, I felt like there were all these family connections, there's a few generations, there are, you know, just felt uh, more um, intimate. By the time Sasha was visiting the commune, RJ Testerman was off at the ranch, and the San Francisco business was headed up by his daughters, Ginger and Mally. I asked Sasha about the cost of the courses that she was attending at the San Francisco house. Yeah, I was paying for the courses. They were around $375 for the Common Sensuality course. And that's the first course that you take. It's the prerequisite for the other courses. And I did another course called Beauty and the Beast, which is, I think that was about $525. And that course is about what men want and what women want, allegedly. And I did another course called the Communications course. I think that was about $375. And then I did the GAP program, which is also considered a course. And um, that was a two-week experience where I actually moved into the house and was a resident of the house and lived there like I was a part of the community. And that was a course that I paid $3,300 for those two weeks. And that course is kind of what you you do when you think you're, you want to move in. So it's a way to assess whether you want to live in the house and whether everyone in the house wants you to live there. There are no prices on the website for the welcomed consensus today, but a San Francisco Chronicle article reporting on a lawsuit in June 2000 mentioned a two-week, full-time, confirmation-intensive course listed at the time for $19,000. The validation course, with no further details, was listed at $310,000. The lawsuit in the article had former member Erwan Devon suing the organisation for money he'd lost to them and accusing them of prostitution, pimping, pandering and keeping a house of ill fame, as well as committing immoral practices in front of children. A lawyer for the welcomed consensus said they denied all the charges, and Christine tells me they settled out of court. I asked Sasha about her impressions of the other people in the San Francisco house. This was still the Juiced Avenue house that Christine had once lived in too. The first time I really met everybody was when I went to my first benchmark, and that was the social event that they opened up to the public and that was held in the house in the communal house in the city and at that event my recollection is that I found um like they really touted how everybody is happy and we're all you know living so pleasurably and we're all so fulfilled and that wasn't the energetically the vibe that I got from the whole the whole event 
Um, the the older women from the group seemed a little bit um, sad to me. And also the, the group makes a really big deal about how the men are trained in seduction and in paying attention to the women in their lives. And I, that was my impression. I mean, I just found the men to be a little awkward and there was a lot of awkward silence and people wandering around. And I didn't have a feeling like I was being supremely seduced. Um, and um, I think the people who really made the biggest impression on me were uh, RJ's daughters, Ginger and Mally. And they, uh, they just are extremely dynamic young women and they're funny and they're beautiful and they're accomplished and they really they really exude what I can imagine a lot of women wanting which is living a life of freedom they had gorgeous partners who supported them you know they really embodied um, this notion of living the full pleasured life and being a full pleasured woman and so, and overall, as a group, everybody was very attractive, really beautiful people. And they were also doing interesting things. You know, it was um, a dynamic mix of um, activities they were doing. They, you know, two of the people had a ceramics studio in the back and had a ceramics business. They were surfing. They were rock climbing. They were writers. Um it was just, they had the whole group, the uh, commune has a farm up north, so they're farming up near Oregon. So, you know, that was really appealing. I asked Sasha if she could give me an idea of the bigger picture and the structure of the organization. So it's a hierarchy with RJ at the very top, and then just below him are the two women that he lives with, Susan and Rachel, and then just below that circle are the women who used to be RJ's favorite women and a few other people, and and then below that circle are probably his kids. He has four of them, RJ does. And in the group, in the entire group, there are probably about 20 people, and about half of those live up north on the ranch in Klamath, and the rest live in the uh, city in San Francisco in the house, in the communal house. And then you're free to travel back and forth between houses and kind of live wherever you would like to and spend time wherever you'd like to. I'm not sure if RJ had just lost much of his charisma as he had gotten older, or if the dynamics had shifted entirely. But disturbingly, it was the women in his orbit who Sasha feels really drew her in. In some ways, this made me think of all the accomplished young women Keith Raniere surrounded himself with in Nexium. Sasha felt no real attraction to RJ himself at all. Well, my first impression of RJ Testerman was that I found him to be a really unsavory character. And again, I had heard a lot about him before I actually met him. And I had very high expectations. And then when I met him, I just found him to be kind of crass. And uh, he made a lot of sexist jokes. He was um, he was pretty offensive, where he was really just kind of talking about himself or 
um, just staring at women in a little bit of a lecherous way. So I, I was not that impressed with him. And I think what really uh, gave him sway in this community is the women that he's surrounded by. And I think, um, you know, in the past, he kind of got some women under his control and those women led to other women coming around. And I, I learned that having powerful women around an insecure man can really create a dangerous dynamic. And, um, I, you know, Sherry, who, uh, was one of the women in his circle and the mother of one of his children, she would say all the time, you know, women come around here because of the women, not because of the men. And I didn't really understand that. But now looking back, it was really, I saw these dynamic, beautiful women. And I felt like they're not going to mislead me. You know, they are not going to lie to me. And um, they are going to only tell me the truth. So I think it, it's really the women that that RJ has managed to surround himself with that really make him powerful. With RJ Testament, a pretty clear line could be drawn between his coercive control within his intimate partner relationships, and which then ramped up into coercive control of multiple followers. Well, you know, the women that are in his inner circle, they've been with him so long, you know, like 30 years. They've had children with him. And in the early, early days, he was just kind of a drunk jerk who decided he wanted a few girlfriends. And he basically beat them into submission. You know, he was, um, Christina's talked about on her blog how there was... Uh, pretty extreme domestic violence. So he was pretty overtly abusive toward them and manipulative. And so, you know, for all the reasons that women um, continue to stay in that kind of relationship, I think that just kind of snowballed. And um, I think it started as just a fun group of people all living together and then they started doing the courses in at Morehouse, and they turned it into more of a, a commune and a teaching center. So the women staying with him, you know, I think they've just been manipulated into it over time. And then you're there long enough, and then um, and you've created your whole life on this foundation, and you might realize that it's rotten. But how do you admit that, or how do you? reassemble your life after all this time I think that he you know he he can be captivating a captivating speaker you know he knows how to hold a room he a room's attention he knows how to um, play with people's emotions he knows how to deliver approval and then withdraw it he knows how to really shock people into paying attention to him you know he'll call out people in a room he'll say things that are completely unsavory and all of this. And he has, you know, certain level of wisdom too. And you throw that in the mix 
and you create a, a charismatic, charismatic leader. Sasha's day-to-day before she moved into the San Francisco house was getting to be a bit of a grind, which I think many people feel in modern life. Yeah, before I, li- uh, before I moved into the commune, I was living in a, a house in a town north of San Francisco, and I was working a full-time job in a very corporate environment. And it was much more corporate than any kind of job I'd ever held before. And I just did it because a friend kind of got me in the door. And so I was working 40 hours. I was kind of racing around, um, just trying to keep up with life. You know, I was financially struggling. I was feeling depleted. Um, and I was feeling isolated so you know it was just kind of a work eat sleep work eat sleep work eat sleep was my routine before I moved in um then living in the house um I was uprooted quite a bit I was kind of doing odd jobs here and there to pay bills and um in the house I usually, so there was so much going on. There were so many demands that it was pretty hard to be away from the house. I mean, on every single day, there was some, there were these obligations that you had or these things that were expected of you. You needed to journal for 15 minutes every day. You needed to do withholds. You needed to have as many dates as you could possibly squeeze into the day. You, there were house meetings, there were benchmarks that were held, there were dinner parties, you know, all of this, it was really frowned upon to miss out on. Every Friday, you were expected to volunteer with the charity that they run, a food drive. So um, it was really hard to ever get away. So most of, most, as much as possible, my routine was in the house. And, um, I usually had a due date with Bill early in the morning before he went to work, usually around 4.30 because he went to work really early. Then I go back to sleep and then it was like, have a due date, have breakfast, have a due date, you know, go do some work, come home, have a due date. I mean, that was pretty much the routine. And then these other responsibilities that you had as a resident. The food drive charity Sasha mentioned is Free the Need. Christine had a bit to say about Free the Need and whether they were really doing much to feed or clothe those in need. She said that a lot of the clothing was taken and worn by those in the welcomed consensus, and the best food was eaten by them too. On Google Maps, Free the Need has three stars, and the only review that goes into any detail is from four years ago. Amy Michelle wrote... I volunteered with Free the Need thinking it would be helping to distribute free clothing to those in need in the community. Instead, I sorted clothing based on how much money the non-profit could get for them. 
A lot of clothing was discarded, apparently to be donated to Goodwill, not given away. At first I thought we were discarding clothes with stains and tears because we wanted to donate only high-quality items, but as it turns out, all the clothes collected are taken to another location, not in San Francisco, and sold for 100% profit. Make a donation to Goodwill or Salvation Army instead. The level of activity that Sasha described in her day-to-day at the commune continued through the weekends. Yeah, weekends as well. And if you're not working, you know, once you start to kind of get hooked into the group and into the house, there becomes, you develop a strange um, dependence. Um, It's, you really... You know, I'm a traveler and I love to be out in the world and I love to go out and meet people and I love to go on adventures and um, be out as much as possible all day long. And when I was indoctrinated with this group, that completely changed to where it I really didn't ever want to leave the house. Um, I think that was partially because um, you get a little bit addicted to these due dates and you don't want to be away from them. You get, there's a lot of, um, dependence that develops on the, just the sensation that's created in the house, whether it's negative or positive, it's a high stimulation environment. And when, when you high stimulus and when you leave, you feel the absence of it. And there was always something fun going on in the house that you didn't want to miss out on a party or um there was also weird dynamics with bill and there was kind of a feeling like if you know i left too long i was kind of going to miss out on whatever he was up to and so um you know got to a point where every second i had free i just wanted to be in the house you know, I didn't want to leave. I just would hang out there. We, I would cook. I would go for walks around the neighborhood. I would have due dates. But, you know, I it got to where that was the only place I wanted to be. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to see friends who were outside of the house. I didn't really want to go places. Um, my preference was just to be home all the time. Sasha described her experience of withholds for me, which you'll remember from Christine's glossary in part one of this episode. Yeah, so withholds, what is this practice where it was required every day, 10 to 15 minutes per day, and it's where two people sit together and one person delivers their withholds to the other person who's pulling the withholds. And and a withhold is any thought or feeling that might keep you from loving another person, right? So um, the way it worked is that you would sit in front of the person and in a neutral matter, in a neutral voice and without emotion and without expression, you would voice these things that were bothering you. So you would say, for example, Uh, so-and-so, when you didn't do the dishes this morning, I really thought you were an asshole. So-and-so, when you gave me that look, I thought 
you were judging me. So-and-so, when you left the room without saying hi, I thought you hated me. So you would do that for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And you would purge these judgments that you had in your head. And, and in theory, the idea is really good. You know, I really did have a, a way of kind of relieving you of these any negative thoughts you were having. But what it also did is it created this closed loop where you were only expressing these things within this context and you would not go out to outside people to share things that were bothering you. So it all stayed very under wraps within the community. And I wouldn't go to friends and say, oh my gosh, can you believe this? And this is really troubling or this is really annoying or this is really you know, upsetting because it was just, you have, it's understood, you have this 10 or 15 minutes to basically complain and then that's it. Then the lid goes back on and then you're happy, joyful, free, sweet, grateful, and charming. The San Francisco house sounded like it had a similar setup to when Christine was involved, but the ranch house by this point had moved to a different property with a different setup. So... Um, in, in the city house, there's a downstairs that has been converted into one large room. And there are like eight or seven or eight bunk beds. And everyone has a bed in the downstairs. And that's all shared. And um, everyone, you know, sleeps in that communal area and does everything else that you might do in a bedroom in that communal area. Well, I should say in the San Francisco house, there were also upstairs bedrooms. And when people came, like the higher-ups, like RJ or his women or Sherry or one of the higher-ups came from the ranch to the city, they would live in the bedrooms upstairs. So they would be separate. And then... um, when you went to the ranch, there were two main houses. RJ lived in one of the houses with Susan and Rachel, his two women. And then in the larger house, there was there were bedrooms on the upstairs where there was kind of one of the higher upper levels of people lived. And then there was more of a basement that had been converted into one communal room. And then the, um, you know, like the lower people in the group who were more the workers, like myself, new people, lived in that room downstairs and shared that space. A blogger who posts under The Van Bun came across the ranch in 2016 through a job posting on a work trade website, and he describes it as follows. The ranch is nestled in a valley with dense forest covering the walls. A beautiful creek flanks the lower portion of the property. There are two vegetable farms, an egg-laying chicken house, a duck chicken house for meat, a pair of milking goats and their babies, cherry trees, a beehive, composting bin, several ATVs, a machinist shop, a woodworking shop, and several trucks. The main house is two levels with a gigantic kitchen that is completely decked out for cooking and entertaining people. Every luxurious kitchen appliance that exists can be found in this meticulously organised kitchen. There is a gorgeous patio, bocce ball court, and manicured lawns. 
at first appearance, this is a utopian paradise. After this blogger had been there a few days and had many odd but harmless interactions with the residents, RJ finally showed up at the ranch. At the end of a long dinner with RJ dominating the conversation, belittling others and ordering people around, the blogger wrote, At this point I realised that this is a cult and RJ is the leader. He is the king. He is the demigod. He is the Marshall Applewhite of the female orgasm people. Everyone exists to please him. He does what he wants, says what he likes and issues commands. Others are not allowed to think for themselves. I asked Sasha if she could tell me about the beliefs of those in the welcomed consensus once they got really involved. When you're indoctrinated into the group, you really believe and are taught to believe that you are advocating for liberation and that, you know, everyone in the group is set themselves free from kind of the chains of society and that you know it's this freeing all women through their orgasm and also I should say what I thought was happening was the men were there to serve me in my liberation by giving me as many orgasms as possible so the belief is that um, orgasm is a path to enlightenment And that every problem that you could possibly encounter can be cured by having enough orgasms. So whether it's emotional or physical or financial problems or mental or whatever negative emotion or experience you're having, it can, if you have enough orgasms, you will be freed of those problems. So um, there were a lot of, you know, due dates happening. And um, it was really, it felt like this quest to free women from the chains of society and from the chains of men's expectations. Sasha found herself completely buying into these ideas. Yeah, 100%. I bought it and I live by it. And, you know, the thing that was really detrimental about this that I didn't realize while I was living there is that there's also a belief system that men are only responders to women. So in their belief system, men have no original thoughts and any reaction or thought that a man has has been produced by something a woman has done or felt. So, um, Really, what was going on is a lot of times when I was um, feeling upset with a certain situation or a dynamic or um, a person in the group, you know, the, the response I always got was, well, you know, you need to go have due dates and you go need, you need to go have do withholds so that you can kind of, in a way, purify yourself of these um, feelings and these thoughts. And 
you know, it, it, it was very rare that um, the men were held accountable for how they were feeling or acting. It was really just about the women needing to um, uh, purge their negative feelings. Sasha explained to me that this didn't mean that men weren't impacted by their involvement in the welcomed consensus as well. You know, men also had to be pushed down um, in order to continue to serve RJ. You know, they had to be diminished. They had to be treated um, like, uh, you know, like they were somehow in a lesser status. They often came into the group with high-powered jobs, which they gave up to do more menial work. And um, so, you know, they gave up, there were men, they gave up a lot of their identities and were also um, having really negative effects of, of this doctrine. I asked Sasha whether she felt that there was anything dangerous about the way that the welcomed consensus was operating. So I think one of the most dangerous things is that they recruit through these trusted platforms. Um, you know, they recruit through Tinder and OkCupid and a lot of dating sites. They recruit people through the Wolf program. Um, they recruit people through Meetup uh, because they advertise their weekly social gathering on Meetup. So... Um, you know, I, I think that that's disconcerting. Um, I think it's, you know, my experience of being with a group. Yeah. I just think they're a very well oiled machine. It's very slick operation. Um, when I was getting involved, I was looking actively for red flags or things for people acting inconsistently. I was aware I was very educated about narcissistic abuse. I knew the most among all of my friends about um, love addiction, unhealthy relationship dynamics. Yet I, I was sucked in so fast. I was so blindsided. It, my, I went from being dubious to being a full believer within a matter of months and giving up my entire life and a beloved dog and countless other things that are were really important to me. And I think they are dangerous because they have this down so pat. Their, you know, their marketing, their whole presentation, it's very slick and it comes off as very benign. And um and I think it's dangerous because once you're in, you quickly lose you know, you shed your goals, any, your identity, your history. Um, it felt to me, I liken it to like wiping a computer clean where all your fo the photos are gone, all the writing is gone, the history is all gone. And it was just this wiped computer was slowly repopulated with all these other apps that I was running. And so I, I just think it's scary how fast that happened. And I saw other people get pulled in at very quickly as well. 
I thought it was quite alarming that someone who was well-versed in unhealthy relationship dynamics could have missed the red flags. So I asked Sasha if there were any pointers that she could give to others to help them catch the ones that she might have overlooked. So, I mean, the one thing I, I didn't know about cults, you know, and that's kind of a beast of its, uh, on its own. And there are a few red flags that I talk about with people. Um, that are things to look out for. Um, I think one is the feeling of having such, being showered in love and attention like you've never had before in your life and feeling like, wow, this is really over the top and feels almost too good to be true. Um, those are clues to be really cautious. Um, I think if you've just become involved with the group and they invite you to go to a remote, lo- a remote location, I would be wary because um, once you're removed to a remote location, it's really easy to keep you isolated and keep you from interacting with your friends and family. And that's a very kind of the fast track to getting control of your mind. Um, I think if People, especially women, if they're all dressed the same, you know, if they have kind of a similar fashion, if they're all wearing, you know, like short skirts and high heels or, you know, if, if they just all kind of look like they have this uniform, um, I would be wary. Um, I think the biggest one probably is if you, if they have a lot of banned words and phrases, You know, if you kind of get, like at the welcome consensus, there were words like um, try and should and bored and certain words like this that implied that you're not taking responsibility in your life that were banned. And if you use those words, you kind of get looks or you would kind of get, you know, scowled out a little bit or questioned. And I think if you're getting involved with a group and you find yourself censoring how you express yourself and how the words you use, I think that's one of the biggest things. If you're changing, that's the beginning of the changing of your identity. And then, I mean, a really common one, um, a more well-known red flag is if there's a lot of pressure to do courses. You know, if they insist that you are somehow failing, if you can't come up with the money, or if you're going to you know, uh, that you should borrow it or that you should find a way and that you're only going to get ahead in your life if you can, you know, like really um, overcome obstacles, that kind all of that kind of rhetoric really is a big red flag. I wondered whether the welcomed consensus was secretive about their inner workings to outsiders. One of the key things I tend to look out for is a red flag. Completely secretive. Um, it, at every turn, I was being told to keep things secret. You know, when you do the common sensuality course, they say don't talk with the inf- this information with people because you have to talk to people at the level that they're on. And if you talk to them about this big information, you're going to blow their minds, quote unquote, that's what they would say. Um, when I was 
preparing to move into the house, I was told, don't talk to people about what you're doing because they won't understand. Um, I, when I moved into the house, I was told, don't talk to people about what we do here. Um, and then even in my relationships with people like with Bill, there were so many secrets. I didn't know who he was involved with. I didn't know what his feelings were for other people. I, you know, if I asked, my inquiry was quickly shut down. And when you come into the group, there's all this mystery. Who's, what's going on here? You know, the who's sleeping with who, who's, what, what are the relationships? What are the, what's the, what are the agreements? What are, what's the deal? You have no idea. It's just a big enigma. And then I was also trained, like how to respond when people ask me questions, you know, to kind of coyly say, like, oh, wouldn't you like to know? Or, you know, oh, well, you know, we have this course coming up and that will, you know, that will shed a lot of light onto your curiosity and, you know, things like that. A blogger who I briefly mentioned in part one, who had come to the ranch via the Woof Network and stayed for a few days in June 2016, wrote in a post on her website, Martel Blog. They preached that there are no rules, but this was one of the many contradictions that I found while staying there. They also preach about communication. They say that communication is the key to their success in group living. However, the entire time I was there, I knew there were many things they weren't telling me. Many times, they would make very vague statements about the way they lived their lives, and if I asked for more clarification, they would just smile their creepy dead-eye smile and say something like, you'll find out eventually. Sasha had a really vivid way of describing the us-and-them mentality that most people experience when they're in a cult. Yeah, so I I developed this really strange filter on how I viewed the world. Um, it was quite intense that when I went out into the world, whether it was a grocery store, I just saw people as these lifeless zombies. You know, I really saw the world as sad. I saw people as just these empty shells. And I saw myself as all lit up, you know, and I was, I was turned on. I I had a lot of, you know, juicy feelings moving through my body. And in contrast to that, the rest of the world seemed very uh, disconnected. And when I spent time with my friends, it was almost intolerable because they would complain or that's how I perceived it, you know, was that it was complaining And they weren't taking action to change their lives. They weren't taking action to have orgasms or to have pleasurable experiences. And um, really the only reason that I would get in touch with my friends was to try to recruit them to the benchmarks. I mean, for I really had no other reason to get in touch with them or stay in touch with them. I, I also would go on Tinder dates for the sole purpose of recruiting. You know, it, that, that was just my single-minded focus was to get people to come to the group. And if they said, no, 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 I don't want to, or I can't, or they kept making excuses or refusing the invitation, 
I, I just had no interest in talking to them anymore. And uh, my family, it was the same thing. You know, I, my family, I didn't really talk to about what I was doing because I knew they would just immediately um, question what I was doing. So I didn't give a lot of details because I didn't want to be questioned and I didn't want to have to face the own, my own doubts that would creep in. Extenuating circumstances forced Sasha to move out of the house at the end of 2018, though she still remained emotionally involved with the group. It took another few months for her to disengage entirely. So I, what happened is that I listened to um, Escaping Nexium, the podcast, Sarah Edmondson's podcast, um, the CBC radio podcast about Nexium, and from the very beginning of her story, I I just could relate, and I felt really strange listening to it, thinking, well, all of that was my experience, and all of that happened to me, and all of that is what I was taught and trained to do. So... I listened to the entire podcast and then I just went online to Google welcome consensus. And it was the first time I had done that since I had first become involved with Bill. And um, a woman by the name of Christine Acosta had a few months earlier posted her blog about being a part of that community from the beginning, about her experience of being sexually abused by R.J. Testerman when she was 13, and the whole backstory. And as soon as I read that, and I saw that, it just, I said, oh my God, it's all true. I know it's all true. And it all the pieces fell into place. Everything made sense. All of my doubts, all the things that I hadn't been able to reconcile I just immediately woke up and had no doubts about what I had been involved with. In the intervening years, Christine, whose story you heard in part one, had had children of her own. As they were getting close to the age that she had been when she first met RJ, Christine had a mental breakdown. She started seeing a therapist. RJ had always told her that they were full of it, but she didn't know what else to do. And eventually she came to realise what had happened to her. She finally cut ties with RJ for good. Christine was diagnosed with complex PTSD, which still affects her today, and probably always will. She tried going to the police, but in terms of the crimes around her sexual abuse, she was too late. There was a statue of limitations, because I was, you know, I mean, it was 40 years later, right? And um, then there was also... Like the police in San Francisco said, like, I don't have any physical evidence about what he did. 
And there are no laws against brainwashing. You know, there was no laws against everything else that he did. Christine even tried to get RJ in a room to talk about it, seeking some kind of closure. But he refused to engage. After hitting all of these brick walls, that's when Christine started up her Truth About RJ Testament website. She felt that she had to do something. Like it used to be, I would post and I'd be screwed up for two or three weeks. You know, I'd feel so, and even now, like working on my next post, it like, it really messes with me. I, it throws me off my, my cookies, you know, and then, but then what would happen is I would post and I'd feel, and then I'd be depressed afterwards because like nobody cares and who cares and I'm just making this all up. And I had, you know, horrible nightmares about all these people for, for a very long time. And um, then it would start again. Then it would start niggling at me again that I'm not posting enough. I'm not doing anything, that it's just still happening. He's still selling the same thing. Sometimes Christine finds herself wishing other ex-members would do more. But then she also understands how difficult it is to come to terms with having this kind of thing in your past. And I feel like, you know, I'm lucky, you know, I'm lucky to be in the situation that I am, to have the support that I do have, to have the family that I have. Because for me, I was suicidal, but I had these kids and I wasn't going to leave them. And I'm still, I still get there, right? Like where all I need to, I'm so scared, I'm so triggered, I'm whatever, I'm hiding. But I have these kids and I still got to get up every day (laughs) and be their mom. So, I mean, they might have been the ones who cracked me, but they're also the ones who saved me. And they give me my reason. Sasha said that there had been brief moments during her time with the welcomed consensus when she might have seen past the relentlessly joyful veneer. There's a time that I think about a lot where I was taking the common sensuality course up at the ranch and RJ was teaching and he had Susan and Rachel and all the women kind of flanking him, which was customary for the courses. He was in the middle. They were all all on his side. And there were about 10 people in the course at the most. It's It's in a small room. And we were all kind of settling back into our chairs after this break. And RJ made a comment. And then the woman sitting next to me, she made a joke uh, at his expense. Like she kind of joked about the comment he had made. And it was really, really funny. And it was a completely innocent joke. But a few people heard it and kind of cracked up. And then and I was giggling because it, it was really amusing. And it... it And, you know, it was just a moment. And I looked up at RJ and he, his face was bright red and he just had rage all across his face. And I, he almost looked like he was going to, like steam was going to start coming out of his ears, you know, like his head was going to pop off. Like he was so livid and clearly 
it just incensed that someone had the nerve to kind of mock him. And all the women around him were kind of nervously moving around in their seats, looking like they were all preparing just to like hold him down if he launched out of his seat. I watched all of this unfurl and I just, I remember thinking to myself, wow, he really hates women. I don't think he really regained his composure for the rest of that day. You know, he kind of disappeared at the end of the day. But, you know, I think about that all these little times when kind of the truth came through a little bit. And, you know, I just, you, you kind of, it's like being out in the surf and the wave hits you on the head and you're down, down, down. You come up and you get a breath and you, you see air and you get air and then you get pushed back down and you get held under. There are these little moments where you kind of pop up, but then you just get sucked right back in. The woofer who'd visited in 2016 echoed some of Sasha's thoughts when she described RJ like this. Constantly talking loudly, appeared to love the sound of his own voice, also loved to interrupt people mid-conversation. Others in the group appeared to hold his opinion in very high regard. He was all about appearing macho, but also claiming to be sensitive to feminist ideals. However, you could tell by the way he treated all the females in the group, myself included, that he had absolutely no respect for women whatsoever. I always wonder how much cult leaders really believe in what they're teaching and how much is manipulation to get what they want from others, as you'll know if you've listened to much of this podcast. Sasha gave me her impressions here. I think RJ knows 100% that he's found this awesome racket, you know, where he's getting fucked and he's getting money and he's kind of hit the jackpot. And I think that he justify. I think he genuinely believes that the only thing women want is to have their bodies pleasured and to have orgasm. I think he, he might genuinely believe that. So in some ways it makes it right for him that win-win in his mind that he's, you know, providing women with all this orgasm. And so he's, you know, it's a legit, it's legitimate in his mind somehow so I think he believes like I can imagine going up to RJ and saying I want a career as you know I want to be an anesthesiologist you know and I can see him saying you don't want that you don't want that you 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 just want orgasm believe me that's all you want you know and that's really that was the reoccurring theme is, you know, their tagline is, um, you know, what do you want more of? But then underneath it should say, here, let us tell you orgasm. That's all you want, you know? Um, so I think RJ found himself a sweet spot and n- knows he's full of shit, but has somehow managed to convince a bunch of people to follow him. I think... There are women, 
I mean, I think a lot of people in the group, um, you know, they vary as far as their belief. I think some have, like I was saying earlier, have been there so long. They might know, like, oh, this has really gone awry, but it's just too late to back out. Um, it would just take too much to come clean um, or make amends or fix all of the damage. And then there are people like myself who are in there who just keep, you know, getting sucked in further and further. And they believe wholeheartedly with all of their hearts and their minds that they are bringing good to the world. Christine feels that RJ's daughters never really had the freedom to do what they wanted with their lives, which she thinks is a great loss. She told me that she wishes nothing but the best for the both of them, as long as they're not bringing people into the orbit of RJ. You know, I mean, there was a real effort to enroll those girls into taking on their business. Um, Ginger wanted to be a lawyer. She wanted to go and go to law school, you know, but they didn't want her to. And there was a whole campaign of manipulation to keep those girls doing exactly what they're doing. And it's heartbreaking. Christine had been devastated when she heard that Sasha's experiences had been much more negative at the hands of Ginger and Molly than with RJ directly. But she and Sasha both think most of the negative aspects were ultimately the result of RJ's decisions at the top. Having heard Rowan and Sasha both speak about the positives of some of the practices, I wondered whether Sasha knew of any groups that were teaching the methodology in a non-problematic way. I don't know of any. I don't know of any. And it's really unfortunate because I think the practice has a lot of potential to, uh, you know, it, it can be very pleasurable. I think it can bring couples closer together. Um and I have friends approach me and say, you know, I'd like to learn or my boyfriend would like to teach me or who he'd like to do me or, you know, uh, and I have nowhere to send them to learn or to practice. Um, you know, you can do courses and whatnot, but I, I just I wouldn't trust any of the uh, programs currently being offered in this. And unfortunately, a lot of the um, like sex positive uh, people or instructors and advocates are still promoting one taste and welcome consensus as places to learn this. So they're kind of still sending people to learn orgasmic meditation without realizing how harmful and destructive they can be. RJ Testerman was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer in June of 2019. Christine wrote on her blog about her mixed feelings, along with those of other ex-members at the news. Quote, Some people felt like me, hopeful that this would allow these women and their children to evolve and have something more in their lives. These women and I were friends more than a little, that is true. Not as much as I once thought we were, but I used to love them a lot. Now my life is filled by true friendship, real love I can count on no matter what. 
I see how all the need for hiding and subterfuge makes real connection impossible. I wish this understanding and love for them still. No one will ever convince me ignorance is bliss. There's no longer any mention of RJ Testimon on the website for the welcomed consensus. The About Us page says, There are many roads to enlightenment. Ours is through female orgasm. It continues, Gratified people tend to treat others with more compassion and love. Benchmark events are currently on hold due to COVID-19 restrictions. Nobody I spoke to was sure of the current state of RJ's health, or in fact whether he's still alive. I asked Sasha what she thought might happen to the organisation without him. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, It's so hard to say. Um, My guess is, I, I really, I really have no idea. You know, I don't really see anyone in the group who has the ability to step into his shoes and put the pressure on all of the, the, the followers that's required to kind of keep everybody in line because it's very much run from the top down. Um, I have no idea. I mean, they could just continue to teach courses and make it less of a, a culty group. They could disband. I have no idea. And maybe there is someone who will step up and just take RJ's reins and keep running it. I said to Sasha that I'd seen all of those things happen with different groups. A total disbanding, a move to being less controlling, and a handover of the leadership to someone else who continues on with the status quo. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I know his daughters are highly motivated. They're very uh, strong believers. They worship him and his teachings. Um and, you know, they carried out a lot of his orders and they kept that house in line. You know, they were the ones who ran the San Francisco house and um, reported to him. So I have no idea. I think Ginger Mally, you know, they also, they, they do have a fair bit of power that they're enjoying, you know, they are kind of running people's lives and they're running the house meetings where they're doing this coaching and they, you know, they're the leaders of the house where they, everything kind of happens based on their wishes and their commands. So, you know, there's some benefits to their status. And I also know that they do, I I do know that they're good people. And they're caring people and, uh, like, really loving people. And that they have to have serious questions come up. Christine feels there are a number of people that have left the welcomed consensus who don't speak out about their experiences due to fear. I mean, I have some friends who have told me, like, I'm scared that if I say anything, they're going to release information about me. Because when you get into the classes, especially in the upper level, the upper level classes, like, you're giving them all of your sexual history. They have video of you naked, 
the video of your crotch, you know what I mean? You with all these other people. Like there's a lot of sense of, you've written down a lot of stuff, you know, that they have. And I think too, like people don't want to talk about it because you just feel really stupid. You know, you feel, I feel really stupid. And, but I've learned enough now to realize how common this is. For Sasha, leaving the welcomed consensus had some deep emotional ramifications. But in a testament to the power of people telling their stories, reading about Christine's experiences really helped her to find a way through her own feelings of trauma. Today we're going to finish up the episode with this part of Sasha's story. Though of course, leaving a cult is never so neat, and this is something that will continue to affect her life. I mean, really, I just felt brokenhearted. You know, I felt really crushed because you come to love the people in the group like your family. Um, and I did believe wholeheartedly that they were there for me, that they had my best interests at heart. So I felt crushed and I went and I had been pretty much from the time that I left in a pretty, in, in a real kind of, a depression basically, you know, where I, I didn't want to work much. And I was thankfully living at a friend's where I didn't have to work very much. And being at his place really gave me the freedom to kind of unwind and go through a lot of the feelings and to experience in my heart the realization of how deeply I've been manipulated and abused. And so, you know, it was a process of recovering my identity, but also such gratitude that for me it had become crystal clear that it was time for me to move on with my life you know because after I left I was in this limbo like I don't really like it out here in the outside world how do I get back in you know it was back and forth back and forth I was really in limbo and not moving on so when I saw that information, it set me free. And for that, I was extremely grateful. And, and since then, it's just been a process of finding my voice and um, connecting with other people who've had similar experiences. And it's been ultimately empowering, you know, because I kind of got a taste of a pretty rare experience and lived to tell about it. And I, and that sounds dramatic, but a lot of people, they don't ever come out. And that is a death uh, of sorts. access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. Details at ltaspod.com. 
This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. Engineered by Andre Patrashev. Thanks to Corey Green of Transducer Audio for editing. A very special thanks to Christine Talbot Acosta, Ruan Mipagala, and Sasha Nelson for sharing their experiences with me. You can hear more of Ruan's story on the Rwando podcast and Christine and Sasha's at truthaboutrj.com. Information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from true wireless to noise cancelling to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au. And you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. For sexual assault resources in Australia, visit 1800respect.org.au and in the USA, visit rainn.org. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.